Let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we do come before you this morning and humble ourselves, giving you praise and honor and glory for you so rightly deserve all our acknowledgement and our praise and our uh, confession, Lord, that you are sovereign, that you are good, that you are just, that you reign over all, that you're in total control. Father, this creation was spoken into existence by you and it belongs to you, including each person that's in this room this morning. And so, Father, we willingly bow our hearts before you and acknowledge you, give you praise and honor. We thank you for the scriptures, the words penned by Ezekiel long ago, Lord, that are pertinent to our lives, that speak uh, truth to us, help us to take it and incorporate it in the way that we think. And Lord, may you be given glory by this class this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is week number 41, and uh, we're rebranding this study that we've been looking at. Um, we're changing it the way it looks on the website, so we're going to, instead of just calling it eschatology at this time, we'll do that later. Right now we're calling it God, God's Land Plan, okay? Because this has all been about the reason we've gone through everything we have for the past 40 weeks this being the 41st week, is to get a proper understanding of the land in the Middle East that God gave to the patriarchs that is still in his plan here at the millennial reign. So God had a plan before he created the earth that there would be a particular place on the earth that would be his land that he would be jealous for and he would orchestrate all of history around this land. And you know, we saw back a few chapters ago where the scriptures called this land that was given to the patriarchs uh, the center of the earth. And so that's the way it still is today. There's a lot of focus on this uh, land area and there always will be. And ultimately this is how it will culminate in what we see as a millennial reign of Jesus Christ, so we call it God's land plan. And uh, we'll finish this uh, through Ezekiel in probably three or four more weeks, and then we'll go on to something else and change the name, uh, because it's not necessarily just about the land, it's about um, the whole earth. And so, um, but anyway, this, that's why we've been in this study, that's why we started here, <clears throat> because this is where it ends. And so we wanted to get the proper perspective to understand um, God's plan for this land. <clears throat> and all the way through, um, I've picked out passages. We haven't looked at everything. Obviously, we started back in Genesis. But we've picked out passages that talk about God's purpose for this land. And so um, anyway, we're rebranding. Uh, hopefully, we'll have that all done on the website within the next three or four weeks, and then we'll move on to something else and change the name. So last time we left off in chapter 45 of Ezekiel, and you'll remember that um, there's a very specific tract of land that is detailed uh, in this chapter. And specifically last week we looked at that 
surrounding the temple, with the temple right in the center of it, there's a tract of land that is 25,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits. Now, de depending on if you use a normal cubit, which is 18 inches or so, or if you use what we've been using, um, the cubit being equal to a cubit and a hand breadth, which would be 22 inches or so, um, obviously the size of this tract differs. I use the bigger one because all through the description of the temple he used a bigger one. And when he describes the land of the temple here in this passage, he says it's 500 cubits by 500 cubits, which is the same size it was when we were using the bigger measurement. So if it's the bigger measurement, 22 inches, this land is about 8.7 miles by 8.7 miles. So it's pretty big, um, 80 square miles or something close to that. And you remember it's div divided into three portions. There's the center band, which is 10,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits that surrounds the temple area. The temple is right in, not in the, well, I guess it is in the center of it, if, um, being equidistant from each side of the rectangle and the top and bottom of the rectangle is the temple. And the land that is here, 10,000 by 25,000 cubits, is for the, the Zadokian priests, the sons of Zadok, the ones who minister close to the Lord. They also live closest to the temple. And then to the north of that is another tract that's 10,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits. That is the land of all the other Levitical priests. So they all live in that area. The Zadokian priests live around this, uh, the temple. And then to the south of that, there's another band uh, that's 5,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits. And that's the land of the city. And that city, I believe, is Jerusalem, uh, being located closest to the temple. This is the city where Jesus Christ would be on the throne of David, who would be a few miles from the temple. And so we saw that land divided. But then on each side of that land, extending all the way to the Dead Sea and all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, is um, the land of the priest. And that's where I want to, or of the prince. That's where I want to pick up today because, and as you think about this, I gave you a diagram last week. That diagram is not to scale because <clears throat> I, I measured it um, this week. And by my measurement from the Dead Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, if you go due east-west, is somewhere between 50 and 55 miles. Okay, so if this land of the 25,000 by 25,000 cubits is a little less than nine miles, then the land that's left for the prince is 46 miles or so. So it's very large. And so you got nine miles in the center, and then the land to the east and the land to the west is for the prince, and it's big. It's 25,000 cubits tall, so it's something like nine miles tall, and it's somewhere between 40 and 45 miles wide. So it's a lot of property. And we'll see why he needs all that property as we go through this chapter, the rest of the chapter. And that's why I wanna start where we left off last week, which is in verses seven and eight 
that talk about this prince because he becomes prominent in the last part of this chapter. And so Ezekiel 45, verse 7, and just the beginning of 8, the prince shall have land on either side of the holy allotment and the property of the city adjacent to the holy allotment and the property of the city on the west side toward the west and on the east side toward the east and in length comparable to one of the portions from the west border to the east border. So basically what it's saying is that all the land on the east and the west of this 25,000 by 25,000 cubits is for the prince. And we talked about this last week. Having, having such a large tract of land, there's got to be people who help this, this prince. They're not given in this chapter who they are. And apparently this pre, prince is not a priest because he names the priest and then the prince isn't included. But the prince is very prominent in the worship of God in the millennial reign. Matter of fact, without the prince, you couldn't have the worship as God prescribes it. And we'll see why that is true as we go further down. Now, beginning in verse 8, he talks, God talking here, to all the tribes who are not the Levitical priests, are the prince. And so beginning in, in verse 8, um, where we talked about um, this land shall be for a possession in Israel. So my princes, notice the plural, shall no longer oppress my people, but they shall give the rest of the land to the house of Israel according to their tribe. So now we're talking about all of the promised land other than the land that was given to the Levitical priests and that that was given to the prince. So all the other land is what's being talked about here. And he says, Thus says the Lord God, Enough, you princes of Israel, put away violence and destruction and practice justice and righteousness. Stop your explorations from my people, declares the Lord God. So he's calling for all of Israel to be righteous and to be just. And he's going to give very specific details of what he means by that. Okay, because um, clearly in the time of Jesus Christ, there was corruption in the temple. It's where all the traitors went into the outer court of the temple. And while Christ drove them out of there, that was no place to be bargaining and selling and all of that because it was holy to the Lord. And so on that last... Um, uh, time that Jesus Christ went to the temple before his execution, he drove all the people out of the outer court. And so um, now God's going to talk about the way that they go about their daily lives and how they practice during their daily lives. And he says in verse 9, well, in verse 10, you shall have just balances a just ephah and a just bath. The ephah and the bath shall be of the same quantity so that the bath will contain a tenth of a homer and the ephah will a tenth of a homer. Their standard shall be according to the homer. Okay, so what he's talking about here is about 
measurements that would be put onto a scale. And you know, we all know of corruption in scales, right? That you, um, you don't balance your scales properly and so you overcharge people for what they're putting on the scales as it weighs out. That's what he's talking about here. And he's talking about that you will use just measurements. And so he talks about a homer and a bath and an ephah. So what are those? Well, a homer can be either a liquid or um, a dry measure. And then a bath is only a liquid measure and an ephah is only um, a dry measure. Okay, because you know, when you start talking about ounces, and we do this today, they can either be dry or they can be wet, right? I mean, we have that in our system today. Now, these measurements are, I would say, extremely small. He says that there are 10 baths in a homer. Okay, now, when we start talking about this and we compare it to measurements that we use today, then this Homer would be what we consider in gallons. And it's pretty good size. It's 58 gallons. Actually, 58.12 is what we calculate it to be today. So if you think about that, you've seen 55-gallon drums. So this Homer is a little bigger than that. It's 10% bigger than a 50-gallon drum because it's 56 or so. So if you tried to pick it up, you know, pick up a Homer and it was full of water, um, you would not be able to do that because it would weigh, um, well, water weighs what, like almost eight pounds per gallon and there's 50 of them. So you're trying to pick up something that weighs like 400 pounds. So you're not just gonna carry around an ephah, I mean a homer. So they break it down and that into baths instead of being just a homer. And there are 10 baths to a homer. Okay, it's still significant. It's still something like between five and six gallons and so um, it's still going to weigh 50 pounds or so. So, um, but that's what's being talked about here is liquid measurements that are somewhere between five and six ounces and then the larger, which is 55 or 60 uh, gallons, sorry, 55 or six gallons and then 55 or 60 gallons. So when it comes to the wet measure, this is fairly large. But when it comes to the dry measure, not so much. Now, in, on the dry side, we calculate that a homer is something like um, almost six bushels. Now, when I was growing up, we had bushel baskets. I don't know if you've ever done that, because that's how you bought peas and beans and that kind of stuff, and then you had to take them home and shell them but a bushel basket was about so high. Didn't weigh a whole lot because it's full of beans or, or um, peas in their shell. And so I remember that, but this measurement of a homer is between five and six of those. 
So that's, that's a pretty good size measure um, when you start talking about dry uh, things. Now, you, um, you, you take that down and you look at what's being described here as an ephah, and an ephah again has 10 ephahs to the homer. Okay, so he, he's trying to give them measurements. And what he's basically saying is that when you trade and you sell, you must use just scales. You must be righteous in the way that you deal with each other. And he's talking about the 12 tribes of Israel. And so inside of Israel, this is the way it's going to be. Now, outside of Israel, there are um, other people who are reigning. Okay, and that would be what I believe is the church today will be reigning over all those nations. And you would assume they would impose the same justice and righteousness. Um, but we don't know. This is for the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he's given very specific measurements for them to follow. So an ephah would be a little over half a bushel. It'd be 0.624 bushels. So half of a bushel ba basket. And that's what this passage is about. If you keep reading, um, after describing the ephah and the baths being a tenth of a homer in verse 11, then he says, the shekel shall be 20 giras, 20 shekels, 25 shekels, and 15 shekels shall be your manna. So you're like, what in the world is he talking about here? Well, this is very small measurements when he gets to this, because a shekel is equal to approximately, now this is small, 0.4 ounces. All right, now, you know, um, if you think about weights, that's a pound is what, 16 ounces. So this is 0.4 ounces. So it's a very small measure. And this would be a coin also used in that day, right? So he's talking about the weight of the coin. And it's a very small coin. And it's 0.4 ounces. And then he gets even smaller here because he talks about this um, measurement that is called um, a gira, right? And that there are 10 giras to the shekel. So now you're talking about 0.04 ounces. So something that is very, very small. So what he's saying is that you need to be extremely precise in your measurements. You, you are, you're not to cheat one another. You're to be righteous with one another. And you're to deal honestly all the way down to 0.04 ounces. So that's, that's the meticulous nature that God wants them to deal with one another in. So that you're very precise, that you're not cheating one another, and that you're being honest in the way that you trade with one another. Because this would apparently be, as it was in those days, this is a barter system. You know, there is some money, but there's also just a bartering of goods back and forth between one another. You give me this, and I'll give you that. And you do it based upon scales. You put your 
measurement on a scale, and then the other guy puts his, and until they balance, and once they balance, then you trade goods. So that's what's being spoken of here, and it's not so much the details that are given, but the desire of God for them to deal righteously with one another. That's the point of this passage, that there will be no cheating in the land of Israel. You're going to be righteous in all the ways that you deal with one another, and extending all the way down to 0.04 ounces. So you can see God's emphasis here. And then he talks about, and I don't know why the scriptures use this language, but it's confusing to me and maybe to you. He says um, 20 shekels, 25 shekels, and 15 shekels shall be your uh, mina. So what is he saying? I think what he's saying is you add 15 shekels and 20 shekels to 25 shekels in order to get how much is in a gira. So there would be 25 plus 15 plus 20 is 60 shekels in a gira. I think that's what it's saying. So um, even that is not a large measurement because if you take 0.4 ounces and you multiply it times 60, you come up with about a pound and a half. So a gira is equal to about a pound and a half. So he's given measurements all the way from pound and a half down to 0.04 ounces. In all that range, you're to be righteous in the way you deal with one another. So he's talking just about being very precise and go to links to make sure that you don't cheat one another. Have just weights, have just Measurements have just balances, deal with one another justly, is God's command. And again, this is not to the priests, this is to all the tribes. Now, it's going to become important because when you start to, to break out your offerings to the Lord, these same measurements are used. And so he, he wants precision even in the way that you give to God. And I think that's probably the more important point is that as you bring your offerings, and I think you'll be surprised at the measurement of these offerings, at least I was, um, as you divvy out what portion of your harvest, what portion of your collecting of oil from the olive trees, um, what portion of your herds, how much of that goes to the Lord? Because that's where he's going to, that's what the next verses talk about. Verses 13 through 17 talk about not dealing with one another, but dealing with what you give to God. Okay, and he's going to, he gets very specific in about what he requires from the people. And again, this is God speaking. Now he's speaking to Ezekiel, who is then going to repeat all of this to the people. That's the command that we saw last week and all the way back, really, to chapter 1 of, of Ezekiel. And so as you come to verse 13, he starts talking about what your offerings to the Lord should be. And again, it comes from the grain, from the oil, and from your animals. So he says in verse 13, 
This is the offering that you shall offer, a sixth of an ephah from a homer of wheat, a sixth of an ephah from a homer of barley. Okay, now, we said this. How many ephahs in a homer? Ten. And then here he says that you give a sixth of an ephah for each homer of wheat and barley that you collect. So it's not 10% like we usually think about, right? Which is given in the scriptures. It's 1 60th of a homer goes to the Lord. So I don't know why, you know, because all the way through the scriptures we talk about a tenth and tithes and those types of things. But here it's nowhere close to that amount. It's a sixth of a tenth. It's a sixtieth that God demands that they give for each homer of wheat and each homer of barley that they collect. So pretty small portion, one and a half percent as opposed to 10% that we think about. So this is the way it is. This is what God demands. And he goes on in verse 14, and the prescribed portion of oil, namely the bath of oil, a tenth of a bath of oil from a core, we haven't seen that yet, which is 10 baths of, or a homer for 10 baths or a homer. So a core is the same thing as a homer. It takes 10 baths to make a homer. It takes 10 baths to make a core. And out of a core, they're to give one-sixth of a bath. So again, you're at one-sixtieth of your oil you're to give to the Lord, to be in your offering to the Lord. So nowhere near the percentage, uh, did I say that right? I didn't say that right, right? Prescribed, oh, a tenth of, an, of a bath is the prescription for an oil. So that's a tenth of a tenth. So one one hundredth or one percent of your oil. So one and a half percent of your barley and wheat and one percent of your oil. So very small measures that God is demanding. And you'll see why in a second. Um, because there's a lot of people, remember, in the land of Israel. It's like it, the whole land is like it was in Jerusalem during the times of the festivals. That's what the scripture has told us. Which means it's crowded everywhere. There are a lot of people everywhere in all of the land, in all of the land of the tribes. So there's a lot of people, and each one of them is to do this. And then you, in verse 15, he starts talking about how much of your livestock should be given to the Lord. Now, he only talks about sheep here, um, but you'll see in, in verse 15, and one sheep from each flock of 200 from the watering places of Israel for a grain offering, for a burnt offering, and for a peace offering to make atonement for them, declares the Lord. Let me move this back up. So, again, you don't give 10%, which is out of 200 sheep, you would give 20 
you give one sheep out of 200, which is one half of 1%. So we're getting smaller and smaller and smaller here because he goes from one and a half percent of your wheat and barley to one percent of your oil to a half a percent of your animals. Okay, so this is not overwhelming. This is not onerous. This is light. Good, Mark. All the time. If you take a harvest, you give one and a half percent of your harvest to the Lord. If you take oil, you know, you go and you get your oil from your trees, you give one percent to the Lord. As your animals are born and they begin to grow, you give one out of every 200. And this is continuous, and you'll see why in a second. So this is all the time. I mean, you don't harvest all year round, right? You harvest um, wheat one time a year and barley one time a year, not at the same time, which is why they had those two crops, because you harvest them at different times, so you always have grain. Um, animals are always being born, and then oil from the olive trees is also a seasonal thing. Now, we don't know what it's going to be like in Israel during this time, but you, I mean, it takes time for wheat and barley to grow. And, will be overtopped. Yes. That's right. Yeah, and we've seen that, that, you know, back when he was talking to the trees and to the grass and all of that of the land, where he says you'll have plentiful rain and you'll produce abundantly. Remember all that way back at the beginning when we first looked at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, God was describing those things, chapters 40, 41, 42, about how he was speaking specifically to the land, not to the people, but to the land, declaring how abundant and how fruitful it would be. And we'll see here uh, in another two, uh, two chapters that there's a new river that runs through the middle of all this land and makes the Dead Sea become um, fresh. So, and it teems with produce. So we'll see that as we go forward. So yeah, the, the land is super abundant. And one of the reasons it has to be is because you've got super abundant people. There are a lot of people in this land. And like we said, life goes on. People still getting married, people still having children, children still growing up and having more children. So life goes on during the Millennial Kingdom. Nothing says that the people who enter into the Millennial Kingdom stay there for a thousand years. I mean, obviously, the priest can't go near a dead body. So there are people who are dying during the Millennial Kingdom. Don't know exactly how they transition. We're not given that, but they do. But people die here. We saw there people get divorces during the Millennial Kingdom. People sin during the Millennial Kingdom. Life goes on just like it does today. These are still human beings. These are still people who have faults, still people who are tainted with sin but they're to deal with one another righteously and they're to measure out what they give to the Lord righteously. That's the whole point here, that God is demanding a righteousness that is beyond what they could do without being filled with the Holy Spirit, just as he does with us today. He demands a level of righteousness that infiltrates everything they do in life. 
So no different than for us, right? God demands righteousness from us. Uh, we don't always live up to it because we're still fallen human beings, but nevertheless, he still demands it. Same thing he's doing in the land of Israel here. And I, I expect, this is where the scripture doesn't speak, this will be true everywhere because the whole earth will be re ruled by the church. And so I think it'll be the same demands across the whole planet. So um, anyway, we, we often think about this period incorrectly, that life goes on just as it does today. Okay, so... Um, Yeah, yeah, and he's talking about that Israel itself has not only Jesus Christ reigning on his throne in Jerusalem, it has God's very presence in the temple, in the nave and in the Holy of Holies, but that reign of Jesus Christ extends beyond the borders of Israel. It extends globally and in that global reign, in that administration, over the nations are the people of the church who were either um, died in Christ or were called up in the rapture, all given glorified bodies at that time and now reigning over the earth under the administration of Jesus Christ. Oh, sure. Right, Jerusalem is the center of the world where Christ is seated and then everything flows outward from that. Over the 12 tribes of Israel are reigning the 12 apostles. Now, we could debate about who that 12th apostle is, right? Because um, if you include Paul, you have 13. So um, nevertheless, we'll, we'll know when we get there, but someone is reigning over the 12 tribes of Israel. So, uh, and it, we know it's the apostles. Jesus Christ told them that, that you will reign over the tribes of Israel. So, and then outward from that, the church reigns. That would be a huge change today. Oh, it, well, it's why, well, why during the millennial reign you have no wars? It's a time of peace. Because it's being ruled by people who will not allow wars and would never go to war with one another because they're all in the family of God. So yeah, it's a vastly different world than what we have today where righteousness reigns, where skirmishes are put down with an iron rod very quickly, but yet life goes on as it does today and you still have humans who are fallen, living on the planet. But they're ruled by people who are not fallen, people who have been glorified, including the Lord Jesus Christ. This is really, this understanding is the only 
Right. Yeah, this, this chapter, what we read in Ezekiel, and this is why we're here, gives you perspective over how to look at all the other end time passages that are given. Because this one is the most detailed. This one, you know, and, and people ignore it. How many times have you studied Ezekiel? First time, right? People ignore Ezekiel. Yet, it gives you the right way to think about all those other passages that speak of end times. Otherwise, I mean, because this is the detail. This is where it's given in living color. Nowhere else in Scripture is it given like it's given here. Just like nowhere in Scripture is tribulation given like it's given in Revelation. So if you ignore those things, then you begin to think wrongly about how God is bringing his plan to an end. And it's important to have the right perspective. It's what our hope is today, is anchored in these things that are being spoken of here. Yeah, and, and to ignore Leviticus, Ezekiel, and the end times, you're going you're to have a wrong way to think about the rest of the scriptures. Just no doubt about it. So you have to frame all of this based on what the scriptures say. And, you know, he's getting ready to talk about what is given in Leviticus 23, which is all the festivals. Are gonna be, we're getting, that's what the end of this chapter is, is the festivals. So maybe we'll get there, maybe we won't. Probably not. Okay, so you, you, I think you get the picture of what's going on here. And God is demanding offerings from the people. But notice where the offerings go. In, he gives this in verse 16. And all the people of the land, and we know that he's talking to all the tribes, right? All the people of the land shall give to this offering for the prince in Israel. This is why the prince has to have so much property. Because the people don't take their offerings into the temple to offer them to God. They all take it to the prince and give it to him. And now there's a reason for that, which we'll see at least in first blush this morning. But you can just imagine all the tribes across all of Israel carrying all this stuff. And I think it's one of the reasons it's only a 60th or 1% or a half a percent because there'd be too much. Otherwise, all of these tribes bringing all of this stuff to the prince. Now, you can imagine the administration nightmare, right? He's got to have silos to put this stuff in, barns to put it in. He's got to have a place to put all the animals. He's got to keep the animals separate. I mean, he's got, he's, and all these animals are without blemish. And, 
I mean, he's got this huge task. Yeah, bigger than Joseph, right? Over all this huge amount of land. So this guy has to have people helping him. A lot of people helping him. And so they take all of this offering to the prince. And the reason is, is that the prince is responsible for providing what is needed in the temple in order to worship God as he's prescribed. So he's not raising barley and wheat and animals and taking them into the temple. The people are raising all those offerings and bringing them to the prince who then administrates over that and takes them into the temple. And that's what, by the way, feeds all those Levitical priests. The Zadokian priests and all the others are fed by what is offered in the temple. That's where they get their goods from. And people bring them to them. We saw not too long ago that if you take um, an offering to the house of a priest, your house will be blessed. So people are also bringing things directly to the priests and giving them to them. That would be what would be known in the scripture here as a free will offering, going beyond what is required to give to the prince. You give to the priests. So all of the, you, the administration is a nightmare. I mean, it'll be done very well. I think it'll be very orderly and everything will flow, but it's, it's a big job. It's a huge job. And so all those abundant lands and abundant um, animals lead to an abundance in the land of the prince. Okay, so they take it all to the prince. Now, verses 18 through 25, we're not going to talk about them today, but we'll look at them just in an overview here. These are the festivals that are to be celebrated during the Millennial Kingdom. There were six in the Old Testament, six festivals. Three of them, everybody had to go to the central place of worship, which would have been where the temple was. In the Millennial Reign, there are not six, there are four. And one of them is new, wasn't in the Old Testament. So three, of the Old Testament festivals are ceased. And we'll talk about why those are ceased. It's um, Passover, trumpets, and what? I think Pentecost, yeah, is gone also. So yes, Pentecost, um, trumpets, and Passover. And, we'll, yeah, I mean, you can begin to see why those are gone. But we'll talk about it. And then you have a new one, which is the new year. And then three that continue, which is Passover still there. Passover and unleavened bread and booths or tabernacles. And then the new one. So there's four in the in the Millennial Kingdom. We'll talk about them. We'll go through these and um, why they, the ones that have ceased have ceased and why the ones that continue, continue. Okay? So we'll pick that up next time. The, 
just for a few minutes in chapter 45 and then move on to chapter 46. Thanks for your time this morning.